Well, no one ever lived a normal life and made a significant impact on this world, whether that be secular or religious. Do you agree with that? It is impossible to stay at home and relax and just take it easy whenever you get the chance and to make a significant impact in this world. Now, don't get me wrong. Rest is a good thing. It's, there's a welcome return to or an emphasis, as the case may be, uh, an emerging emphasis on Sabbath rest for Christians. That is, taking time to spend with the Lord, but also to spend in just letting the cares of this world go and the work that you're, that you're forced to do week in and week out, to, to take a break from that. But there's a difference in intentional rest that replenishes body, soul, and spirit and a desire to escape the difficulties, stress, and inconveniences that come with a lifestyle of impacting the world or especially in helping other people. There's just no way that we can really help others and live a normal life. Now, I understand we have to be careful because some people will take advantage of our desire to help people. And we, we can't let our schedules get so crowded because of people who are just extremely demanding. But, but we're called to serve, and you can't do that while you're relaxing, especially if you're relaxing all the time. If you've been paying attention to our study in the book of Acts, then you're aware that the men and women of the first century weren't, just, weren't playing games. This first century church was a church that was very much alive and active and walked into some very difficult places. I mean, already we have seen believers in prison and beaten and driven out of their cities, their homes and their cities and even their country, and stoned and beheaded. Beheading was, was, was an insult as well as the end of life because beheading was reserved for those who were heretics. And the religious leaders were saying, you are a heretic, off with the head. Instead of shrinking back from opposition, the believers that we read about walked straight into the storm, following the lead of the Holy Spirit and trusting God's sovereignty. And as we will see, they rejoiced when they encountered difficulties. Well, this morning... We're going to read about a bold new adventure as Barnabas and Paul headed off for what we know as the first missionary journey. The title of the message is Strategic Mission. Could have been titled Intentional Mission. But, well, because, well, we'll, we'll see that as we, we come to it. Uh, there's no way. I told Allison as I was preparing this message, I said, it is so difficult to try to, to, to take an entire chapter with 52 verses plus one from the chapter before. When there is so much truth in here, it's just difficult to, to say everything that you, that you know that the Lord is saying in here. And she said after the first message, I get it now, I see, I understand. It's, it's tough and there's no way to even develop all that, that is implied in in, in, in this title. Uh, and, and so this morning we're going to pursue this text in the way that we've done a couple of times for a couple of reasons. Because of the narrative genre of literature that we find so often in Acts and also the length of the text. We're going to talk about <clears throat> some 
truths that we're going to see, sort of flesh those out a little bit. Then as we read the Scripture, it all comes to light. Believe me, I started with the Scripture. I didn't start with these principles and then say, all right, let's find some, passage, let's find some verses to, to, uh, to, to validate this. No, this all came from the Scripture, but I just think it's easier if we talk about the principles, the truth first, and then we'll read the text. And who knows, we didn't get through the whole text in the first message. Doubt we will here, but... We'll get to enough of it. We'll get to what the Lord wants us to. Let's begin our time with prayer. Then we'll get started. Our Father, your word is such a gift to us. In the face of all the physical difficulties that we are facing as a body this week, your word provides comfort. Your word provides direction. And the Holy Spirit in conjunction with your word gives us strength. Lord, that, that's not even to mention the emotional issues that we're dealing with. Because of the, the complexities and the, and the disappointments in this life. In your word we find direction. And Lord, this morning as we are gathered as the church, Lord, don't let us just be here playing at it. Don't let us be here just because it's sort of the social thing to do, to be in church on Sundays. But Lord, may we recognize the seriousness of being gathered today and then scattered to do your work. May the truth of Acts 13 permeate our hearts, fill us with conviction, with challenge, encouragement, excitement, and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first truth that we're going to recognize this morning, and indeed all the way through the book of Acts, is that God's design for His kingdom flows through the church. The last half of the 20th century saw a dramatic rise in parachurch ministries or ministries that are, 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 are based on Scripture but work alongside of the church instead of within the church. Campus ministries like Campus Crusade and InterVarsity and a no, number of others and then, then discipleship ministries such as the Navigators and, 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 and Christian drama clubs and independent Christian counseling centers and Christian camps and the list goes on and on and on about all the different groups that are church-oriented and yet not accountable to a specific church. They're loosely connected with churches, and, and oftentimes the leadership of the church is staffed with church leaders, and churches support them, but they're not accountable to one specific church. And in many ways, these ministries reflect the independent spirit that is American and so prevalent in our country. Are these ministries then unbiblical in their makeup? Mercy, no, no, that's not at all what I'm saying. Our church supports quite a few of them. And the freedom that they have often allows for creative ministry that could not occur within the context and the confines of, of one particular church. But that's a shame. It's a shame. I, I, I'm not suggesting that we try to change that, but I am saying that the reality that that's true is a shame. And while parachurch ministries are not unbiblical, they are 
extra biblical. There is no structure for them in the New Testament. Everything that we see in the New Testament flows through the church. It always goes through the church. That's God's design. Now, many parachurch ministries tie themselves to local churches, and I'm sure that a lot of those leaders feel like I did when I was a camp director. I'm not accountable to one church. I'm accountable to 30 churches. You know, it just it's difficult. And they all sort of look at things differently. So you, you have that feel. But even when I was at TVR, I recognized that God's gospel advances through the church. Ministries like Teen Valley come and go. The church of Jesus Christ will go on advancing the gospel until he returns. Now, if that seems un-American to you, it's small in comparison to the second truth that is clear in the book of Acts. God's design for the church includes strong spiritual leadership and a spiritually minded congregation. Americans don't care too much for strong leaders. We say that we do, but oftentimes we really don't when strong leadership is exerted. Arrogant, self-serving, uncaring are just a few of the adjectives that are used for, for strong leaders. Sadly, it's often the case. It's an apt descriptor of leaders, secular and religious. But the truth in God's scripture is that His design is for strong spiritual Leadership, and both of those are important. Strong spiritual leadership and also a spiritually minded congregation. Now in Acts 13, we're going to see that, that, that the leadership was made up of a diverse group of people. We know from last week that there were a lot of people saved in Antioch. So much so that this very godless city said, Christian, we're going to call you guys Christians. You follow Jesus around everywhere you go, talking about this Jesus guy. They said it probably good-heartedly. But they identified them. They labeled them. So they had made quite an impact on this city of a half million people plus slaves. And the church, which no doubt is fairly good size, is led by these five Men, very diverse group of men, uh, and, and, and that group reflected the makeup of the congregation. The church in the first century was not a democracy, which is why churches that are led by elders or even a hierarchical kind of a structure where you've got the local bishop and the next bishop and the whatever they, you know, you have an Episcopalian kind of rule, not just Episcopal churches, Catholic, Methodist. A lot of churches are structured that way where, where it comes down and flows. But that seems so foreign to so many Americans. Elder rule seems so foreign. Elder-led churches just don't seem right. But let's think about the Jerusalem church for just a moment. How many people were saved in Jerusalem before Stephen was stoned? Well upwards of 10,000. 10,000 or more. Let's just round the numbers off. Let's say there were 10,000 people saved. In the early days, they met in the temple. And that's what attracted a lot of other people. They said, man, something's going on here. And they heard the gospel and they believed. Well, after a while, persecution started up. and They weren't able to meet in the temple anymore. So they met in house churches. And they did that anyway, even while... They were meeting in the temple. They met in one another's homes. They broke bread together. They fellowshiped together. They heard the word in those homes. But let's say the average 
size of a, of a, of a house church in Jerusalem was 10 people. That means there were about 1,000 home churches in Jerusalem based on these numbers. But you know what? It wasn't a thousand different churches doing a thousand different things. They all reported to and were led by the apostles. Later, these apostles formed into a group that, that in, for the church in Jerusalem that went outside of their leadership. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who we'll encounter in a couple of weeks in Acts 15, wasn't an apostle. But we would have to call him in our terminology, the, the, the chairman of the elders of the church of Jerusalem. He was the spokesperson for the, for, for the elders at Jerusalem. And everything flowed through that leadership structure. Next week, we're going to talk a, a little more about elder rule. In fact, Jim McLaughlin, who was one of the founding members of Grace Community Church, and there are several of you in here who participated in working through Scripture determined that elder rule is not only biblical, but it's the way that Grace Community Church needs to be structured. And that's difficult for a lot of people who come from Baptist backgrounds. I, I was trained in a Baptist college. I was trained in a Baptist seminary. I was Baptist almost all my life. If you come from a Baptist church, you probably say, well, his style is sort of like a Baptist preacher. You know, that's kind of what the Baptist preachers talk with their hands, you know, and they walk around, you know. Uh, Plus God! Now, that's kind of Pentecostal, but, you know, some Baptists get that way. <laughs> but, but if you come from a, a, a background where it's congregational rule, elder rule can be a, a little bit difficult to swallow. But the fact is, we're not, we're not concerned about, and I, when I say we, I mean our church, we ought not to be concerned about what's cool in America. We ought to be concerned about what God says about His Word. Elder rule does not work without strong spiritual leaders, but, but it also does not work without a spiritually-minded congregation. Strong spiritual leadership does not mean that the, that, the, that the members of the church are to be robots who just say, yes, whatever you say, elder so-and-so. Elder Scott, I will do that right away. That's not the slightest but we're going to see this morning that the congregation in Antioch was very much involved with and in tune with the decisions, decision of the elders. But there's no question about the structure. And that the, that the focus of the church flowed from the leadership through the congregation and everybody came together and agreed. The leadership of a New Testament church has a great deal of responsibility and spiritual authority. And a congregation has a responsibility to pray for and support the leadership and ensure that those who lead them are following Jesus. Boy, there's so much in Scripture about this. And it's very difficult for a, a teaching elder to say these kinds of things because it sound, sounds like I'm sort of elevating myself. But there's a lot in Scripture about pray for these, obey them, follow them, because they watch for your souls and they're going to have to give an account for you, and you have to give an account for how you follow. Don't bring a charge against an elder unless you've got witnesses, and it's a serious sin that we're talking about. New Testament is quite clear, but it's, not kind, of, it's kind of not the American way. And those of you who are 
very conservative in your politics, probably have a lot to say about our current president. And those of you who are quite liberal in your politics probably had a lot to say about the last president. And that just carries over. The American way carries over to church. Now, one of the things that we fail to see in all authority structures, look, I, I grew up in the 60s where so much of, uh, of the mood of the nation, especially amongst the young, was, we're not listening to you. We don't have anything to do with this authority. I think we're sort of in another time like that today, especially with young people. But it's not like this. It's like this. That is so bogus. That is so stupid, so lame. And while it's not overt rebellion, it is. We are a rebellious people to begin with, and we don't like the structures that God has set. Husband is the head of the home. Parents are over the children. Employers are the head of the of those who work for them. We, we don't feel comfortable with that because we're all about democracy. What we fail to see is that in the next life, these leaders are going to be far more accountable than the followers. That's difficult to put into our minds sometimes because we don't see the next life. I mean, we really believe it, but then again, we, we may not believe it. A spirit-filled, spirit-led church is a team effort. And no team is effective unless all the members are fulfilling, fulfilling their responsibilities and the roles that they have been assigned. And God does the assigning. He's the one who builds leaders up and takes them down. Now, granted, we as in the flesh can mess up a lot of those kinds of things. But it never catches God off guard. I mean, he never says, oh, my, I didn't even anticipate this. Somebody got, angels, anybody, somebody, give me some advice. I need some advice. This is not working the way it's supposed to. It, it's the way he designed it. Of course, we're going to mess it up. But when we follow his plan for us, then we can focus on his design, which is the subject of our next two points, beginning with the mission, singular, of the church is to pursue the great commandment and the great commission. Jesus made it clear that the first and great commandment is for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and might. The second is very similar, love your neighbor as yourself. And when you read the, the letters of the New Testament, you see that happening over and over and over again. But he also gave... His disciples, and, and by extension, all of us a charge. He said, you will be my witnesses here at home, in the community, in the state, in the nation, all over the world, and you're to share the gospel. Make disciples of men and women of all nations. Baptize them and teach them to follow Jesus and His commands. How do we obey the Great Commission? Well, that's what missions is all about, the subject of our next truth. God's design for missions, plural, but also singular, which is a matter for grammarians to, to work out. It's not as clear as we might desire, but it's all we need because it is His design. In other words, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what our strategy is to be to reach our community in the world. But he wants us to be intentional about outreach. He wants us to develop 
a strategy. We're going to talk about how that strategy comes oftentimes in the work of the Lord. It, and in fact, look at number five, our next point. God's direction for our church will come through His Word and through the routine practice of fasting and prayer. When we get to Acts 13 in just a moment, we're going to see that they were fasting and worshiping. They were worshiping the Lord when He spoke to them. The early church had the Old Testament and they had the apostles who were speaking directly from God and they, and, and they had prophets who often spoke from God even though they had to test it and make sure it lined up with Scripture and apostolic teaching. We have the Old and New Testaments though we neither have apostles nor prophets in the first century style of the word. Now there are certain, certainly people that say, you know, I sense the Lord is doing this. John Stott in particular says that he, since he, he believes that the Holy Spirit led them inwardly. We're going to read that the Holy Spirit says, Separate from me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. How did he say that to them? Well, we'll, we'll talk about that few, in, in a few minutes. But certainly, whenever someone says, I believe the Holy Spirit is leading me, then we need to test that and see what God is doing this. Is the fact that he doesn't tell us exactly how he led these first church members somewhat of an intentional ambiguity in Scripture where it's not as clear as we want? If, if, if the Holy Spirit did things in certain ways every time, then we would say, well, that's the way it's supposed to happen, and we would wait on that. But it's not as clear, and so we're open, we're left to think about a little bit the different ways that God uses to speak to our hearts. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a, in a few moments. But for now, let's think about the truth, a truth that we've seen before. The gospel will always incite opposition because it's about Jesus. And when it comes to Jesus, there is no middle ground. I don't know about you, but I like to think of myself as a nice guy. I mean, I, I don't like it when people are upset with me, especially when people accuse me of being mean. Now, I don't know what you may or may not think of me, but what you think about me does matter to me. It does. But I want to tell you, if that were my priority in life, if that were the highest value in my life, I'd get another job. I can promise you that. And, and in fact, I wouldn't mention Jesus to anyone unless someone asked me about Jesus. You know Why? <laughs> because Jesus' name is going to create quite a stir. But a silent Christian is, a, is, is an oxymoron. We absolutely cannot be silent about this life that we have in Jesus and, and the only possibility that others have of eternal life. If we belong to Jesus, we will speak His name. And if we speak His name, Satan is going to hate us. And a lot of people are going to get mad. If you're not careful, you'll get your feelings hurt, but it's important to remember that opposition to the gospel is often personal, but it's not directed at you. I mean, there are lots of different reasons that, that people attack you when you share the gospel. We're going to see in just a few moments that some are threatened. Uh, they, they feel threatened. Their comfort is threatened. Their livelihood is threatened. Others are are opposed to the gospel because of religious convictions, but oftentimes that's built on, on jealousy and arrogance. 
When someone attacks you because of the gospel, it's easy to take it personally, to feel like it's a personal attack, but ultimately it's directed at Jesus. And that's helpful with considering the last point. Joy in the Lord's work is a choice. In fact, joy in this life is a choice. Oh my goodness, we, we know that's true. But it's tough, isn't it? I mean, it's difficult when you think about everything that's going on in your life to say, I'm just going to choose to be joyful. I used to think when, when the Scripture said, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will concerning you, that he meant that it's God's will that this happened to you, which is true, so therefore you should rejoice that, you know, a spouse walked away or, or someone died that you love very dearly or just any, you fill in the blank or I lost my job. Thank you, God, that I lost my... But what he's saying is to thank the Lord in the midst of the circumstances, in spite of the circumstances, not because of him, but because of who he is and the relationship that you have with him and the fact that this life is not all that there is. What we see is not the end game. At the end of our text, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas walking away from persecution, rejoicing in the Lord in the same manner that Peter and John had done when they had been beaten for their witness. So, just before we look at our text, I want to just ask you, if you would, to just close your eyes. And I want you to focus on Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Him... Let me just say that, that salvation is not about doing your best and hoping everything comes out all right, being a moral person. It, it's about recognizing that we're sinners and that Jesus had to come to this earth because he was the only one eligible to give his life as a ransom for others. He died taking our sin upon himself and the full wrath of God was poured out him on the cross. And when we say, God, I acknowledge my sin and I believe that Jesus died for me and we cry out to him, he saves us. And if you belong to Jesus, I want you to think about him on that cross and rejoice that God loved you that much. Think about the resurrected Jesus and the fact that no matter what else happens, no matter what happens to you in this life, God has a plan for you that flows in the context of the church, although you're doing a lot of independent individual things. We are here as a body. Rejoice in God's love and design for your life. Rejoice in spite of your financial circumstances. Rejoice in spite of the hurtful, broken relationship. The relationship that, that is so painful because you were so close to someone and now it's, it's done. Rejoice in spite of that. Not because of it, but in spite of it. Our focus is on Jesus. And so rejoice in spite of what people are saying about you. 
Rejoice in spite of the illness that reminds us, whether it's yours or someone you love, that reminds us about the brevity of this life, how short it is. Rejoice because our names are written in heaven, in the Lamb's book of life, and that we have eternal life. And rejoice in spite of the feeling that you're never going to get about doing what you were designed to do. It just feels like you're stuck in neutral. Just rejoice in the Lord and in your relationship with Him. Now, let's look at the text. We begin at the end of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Jewish name, Greek name. That's what we have with Saul and Paul. Same with John and Mark. Um, we're going to know him as Mark from here out, but in this text he's going to be called John. Now, verse 1 of chapter 13. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, who was from the island of Cyprus, Simeon, who is called Niger, that means black, he was very likely uh, North African, um, Lucius of Cyrene, also North African, though probably very white, not black. Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Remember all these Herods we were talking about and how hateful they were and how they tried to destroy the work of God through the line of Christ and all those who claimed to be followers of Jesus? Well, this Manian, who was a leader in the church, had grown up with Herod, very likely, um, possibly even a, a, um, a relative of Herod's, And yet, not only was he saved, but here he finds himself as a leader of the church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So how did the Holy Spirit call? Did he, did he do it through a prophet? Even if he did, he would have had to, the, the, the church would have had to say, Well, we need to test this. You're saying that this is, this is what you think needs to be done. We're going to test this. The only apostle at, in that group was Saul, and I doubt seriously he was recognized as an apostle with the same authority that Peter and John had at this particular point. Later he would be, but doubt for that. We'll see in the future studies in Acts that it's not always as clear as we think it is how the Holy Spirit is leading. We feel like the Lord is leading in one way. We start out, and then the Lord says, uh-uh. It's a dead end. It's a road that ends up with a dead end. Now, when we, most of our roads today, if you take a road in a particular, anywhere in the country almost, if it's a dead end, it'll be a sign warning you, don't go down this road, it's a dead end. But life isn't that way. We take off in one direction, and it feels like we've just come to a stone wall. Very often, that's a part of the Lord building our character, preparing us for something down the road. But we've got to be careful about saying, the Lord told me this is what I'm supposed to do, and then just thinking that that's exactly the way everything's going to turn out. When we follow the Lord, it's often not as clear as we want it to be. And if we get into the place where we say, this is what God told me to do, and we elevate it almost to the, to the place of spiritual, scriptural, biblical commands, then we can, first of all, be very arrogant. 
well, you're wrong because God told me this, and I know it. And I prayed about it, and I fasted. I want you to know that God is leading me, and so clearly you're, not, you're off the reservation. You don't agree with me. Something's wrong with you. Now, that's not the way everybody is by any means. But you know what? Even if we don't come across that way, it's easy to feel that way in our minds. If we are so convinced that this is the way God leads us because I had a feeling inside of me. I prayed about it, and I feel like this is what God wants me to do. We can first be arrogant, but then when everything falls apart and it goes a completely different way, we can become quite disillusioned. Well, things didn't go like I thought they would. I prayed for him to be healed, and, the, and I knew God was going to do it, and he just wasn't healed. Why? I prayed about this ministry, and I prayed about witnessing to this person, and they may as well have jack-slapped me. They, it, I, what happened? Life just doesn't go. It's not defined as clearly and as neatly as we want. Does it, does it appear like that happened here? Does it appear like it happens all the ways we follow Paul on these journeys? Starts off one way, the Holy Spirit stops him. He goes in the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit says, okay, I want you to go here. How did that happen again? <clears throat> not exactly sure. Sometimes it's a vision, sometimes we're not told how the Holy Spirit leads a person. But it's important for, under, for us to understand that God's leadings don't always go according to the way we think they're going to be. And in fact, what's so sad about it is sometimes you may feel... This is what God wants me to do, and it ends up in disaster. And you say, oh, how could I have been so wrong? Maybe you weren't wrong. God's plan is bigger than ours. So don't be arrogant about it in the first place, and don't be disillusioned if it falls apart. You may marry somebody that you are convinced God wants you to marry, and then later this person goes astray. Did you miss it the first time? No, it's just... We, we, there are no explanations for the way things work out sometimes. We're going to read about Barnabas and, and Paul who were so tight, later they separate over John Mark. What was God's will? And It's not clear. We're going to read people coming up saying to Paul, the Holy Spirit says, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Who was right? Who was wrong? We don't know. It's not as clear as we want it to be. We know this. God is sovereign. And we know this, anything good that happens, happens by the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now it seems that this was the whole congregation laying hands on these missionaries. Not just three leaders laying hands on the other two. And when, when the congregation came together and they laid hands on these missionaries, they were saying, as you go, we go with you. Heart, spirit, soul, and mind. Now this week is Thursday, I believe, right? You guys leave Thursday or Friday? Friday, seven of our body are going to Haiti. We have people going all over the world all the time, especially with the number of students that we have. We have people going to South Africa, to Korea, it, just about anywhere you name, they're going. China, um, uh, South America, 
People are going all the time. We support missionaries all over the world, and we don't do this every time. But we're going to do it this morning. At the end of this message, we're going to have all those who are going on the trip to come forward. And then the entire congregation, as much as we can, we're going to come up here and lay hands on them. And if you can't lay hands on them, lay hands on someone who's laying hands on them. And if you can't, then lay, you know, the deal. Just if we're back halfway to the church, we're going to lay hands on these people and say, as you go, our hearts go with you. You're our representatives, and we are with you every way that we can be. Very likely, this whole process began with the leaders. The church said, we're with you on this. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, if the church had said, we're not so sure about this, they would have backed up and said, Lord, what do you want us to do? And if they said, we feel strongly, this is the mind of the Lord, then all indications are the church would have said, we're with you. Let's go. It is that team effort. All right, verse 4. I don't know how far we're getting. We'll see. So, and I don't rarely plan not to get all the way through, but this is one of those days. And we've got to keep moving, so I won't pick it up next week. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. That was the nearest port. And from there, they sailed to the island of Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in a synagogue of the Jews. In, in, in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John or Mark to assist them. Now, um, they, uh, this was Paul's pattern always. Whether Barnabas was with him, Silas... They would go to those synagogues, and these people, these Jews who already had knowledge of the Old Testament, they would proclaim the word. And almost always, eventually, if not right off the bat, the Jews would reject this message of Jesus being the Messiah. And so then they would move on to minister to the Gentiles, but they always started here. It's a pattern that you're going to see over and over and over in Acts. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, now this was about a 90-mile trek across the island, and it was a preaching tour, no doubt. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation. This is a very interesting play on words here. Bar-Jesus means, means son of salvation. He was anything but as we'll see. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith because it jeopardized his position. He's a magician of the, of the dark arts. And just like we had read about Simeon back in, in, in Samaria, who was well known all over the... the um, or Simon, well known all over the empire, here's a guy who's got a very important place with this proconsul. And his livelihood, his very livelihood is threatened if he, if he converts. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! Play on his name. Son of salvation, he says, No, no, no. You are a son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. 
Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, I would not encourage this style of witnessing unless you are absolutely certain that the Holy Spirit is leading you to do this. If the Lord leads us, we'll start classes on that, you know, how to, you know, how to judge somebody. No, I mean, we would not think about doing this, but clearly Paul was led by the Holy Spirit, and this is what God thinks about the opposition. We're called to love, we're called to, to be gentle as we possibly can, gently turning people from the, from the way of error to truth, and of course it's the Holy Spirit who does that anyway, but our part is to share the gospel. But here, it's pretty strong. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Look at that. That's an odd verse, isn't it, when you think about it. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord when he saw what occurred. All of these miracles are signs of the gospel. John, the gospel of John, lists seven miracles, but John calls them signs. He says these are signs that Jesus was who he said he was, which is the Son of God, who is the Son of God. These miracles were signs of the gospel. We don't go around today rebuking people like that or healing people. If we, look, if we had, if somebody in our church had the gift of healing, don't you think we would have been all over this thing with Elise and with Callie? It's, we don't have those same kind of signs, but the things that we do in our community in helping people and in standing for right and wrong, it's a sign of the gospel. That's what these missionaries are doing as they go to Haiti to work in an orphanage. It's a sign of the gospel, and when people see the love that we have, then they believe, they are astonished at the word. Here this proconsul was the first convert from strategic missions. And this seems to have happened as the Lord led them. Not necessarily on the fly. They had a sense of where they were going, but it's not always the case. Paul would just strike out, and the Lord would lead him as he was doing ministry. It's strategic in the, in, in the sense that we're doing something. And certainly we want to plan and have a, and have a plan of action for how we're going to reach our community and the world. But sometimes it happens just as we are worshiping the Lord and doing what we ought to do. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them. Mark went home to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga in Galatia, southern Galatia, and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And then the Jews said, you got anything to say? And they told him this remarkable story about Jesus and how the prophets had, had prophesied and how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and how now the gospel is what changes people and what God calls us to believe. Then, let's go over to verse 42. As they went out, as they went out, look at this. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. We want to hear more about this. These are Jews. Not the reception they had gotten in most places where Jews were worshiping. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And then Paul pronounced judgment. They shook the dust off their feet and they went out of there. But what? Isn't this sad? The Jews said, this resonates with me, with us. We, we get what you're saying. We need to hear more about this. Please come back and speak. Then the Gentiles come in and their racial prejudices caused them to say, you're a liar, you're a liar, and they reviled him. And when they faced that persecution, verses 51 and 52, they shook the dust from their feet against this, shook off the dust from their feet against them, and went to Iconium. And, and by the way, we, want, we might not do that literally, but you can do it in your heart. When people reject the message that you give, and it feels like a rejection of you, just in your heart, just say, Lord, I'm moving on. I, I'm moving on. And don't let that be a part of what it. Don't you think that was probably helpful? My father-in-law is a pastor. Um, my ex-father-in-law is a pastor, Marvin Fail. They, um, they ran him out of a church one time. And as they walked out the door, I mean, they literally, on a Wednesday night, they saw the parking lot and they, and they said, uh-oh, we know what's happening. And they had a vote and he was voted out. And Virginia, my mother-in-law, <laughs> took her shoes off and popped them and walked out. And, I, you know, I got nothing to say against that. I, I, got, I, I, don't, I don't have anything to say against that. Now, if the elders tell me you might as well get ready to tie your, uh, shoela- untie your shoelaces, I'm in trouble. But think about, oh, Lord, I've heard him speak over there. But think about how helpful it is to do that in your heart and mind. And the disciples, verse 52, were filled with disappointment and sorrow, and they moaned and gro- No, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, O Church, Arise. It's a song about the church not messing around, but getting about what God's called us to do. And then we're going to call our missionaries up. Drew Peterson is going to pray for them as we lay hands on them, and then Drew will give us our benediction. And Father, we thank you for your powerful, mighty Word of God. We know what a change there is in our lives because we believe this word and we believe Jesus. We recognize that it's not about just words on a page. It's about a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as our our brothers and sisters from our body go boldly into Haiti, We go with them in spirit, heart, and soul. And Lord, they've been seeking funds and we just haven't been in a position as a church to say, yes, we're going to sponsor this trip. But Lord, if you lead some of us to help them with that, even at this late hour, what a blessing it would be. Our concern this morning is that we recognize them as our ambassadors, really your ambassadors. And we go with them in heart. Lord, cause us to be not 
Grace Community Church, but the church of Jesus Christ in the place that you have so beautifully begun 16 plus years ago and have built up to the day, to the place we are today as Grace Community Church. If we don't follow you, we don't want to go any further. But following you, we are excited about our future. Bless us in Jesus' name.